In the aftermath of World War I, or as historians called it, the Great War, the nations known as the Big Four, the United States, France, Italy, and Great Britain, all took aim at the unanimously decided instigator and perpetrator of the war, Germany, in order to not only impose harsh punishment on the Weimar Republic, but to also set a precedent for themselves and all other nations around the world as to how future conflicts of a similar magnitude and nature would be dealt with in their aftermath. One such precedent set forth in the 1919 Treaty of Versailles was designed to not only cripple Germany financially, making it exponentially more difficult for the post-war nation to have a rapid recovery time, but to also cripple and tarnish the global image of Germany, steeping the country in shame and embarrassment for years to come. Article 231 or more commonly referred to as the War Guilt Clause, impose massive reparation expectations on the defeated country. It is interesting to note that the shame and humiliation would be the perfect catalyzing force to give rise to fringe politicians and minority groups that would in time become the leaders of the Third Reich. But even before the Nazi movement from minority to majority, Germany would vow to never again be the focus of such humiliation. As we all know now, this vow would become fully voided in less than 30 years, and the massive reparations imposed by the Big Four stood like bug bites next to bullet holes when compared to the reparations mandated by the 1952 Luxembourg Agreement between Israel and the newly named Federal Republic of Germany. Although fraught with tensions and stifling grudges between nations, on September 10, 1952, the Israel and Federal Republic of Germany Agreement was signed, ushering in sweeping reparations to primarily Jewish victims initially but eventually recognizing other minority groups in the decades to follow. But just as the establishing discussions for reparation plans and implementation had been fraught, often snagging on minor details, proving eligibility to receive reparations for survivors was oftentimes a lengthy, disheartening, and discouraging process. This trend of typical process would unfortunately be the path Pierre Seal would also travel down. And although his struggle to be recognized for the suffering he endured at the hands of the Third Reich would be a long and re-traumatizing event, one very key aspect of his experience would be vastly different than his previous ones. The deafening sirens of disdain and indifference he had faced before would no longer be met with his seal of silence. I'm Caleb Franklin, and this is Root and Branch, Gay Survival in the Holocaust. 
Episode 2, The Stolen Watch, The Silent Devouring, Part 3. With his mother's recent passing, Pierre was now left to the aforementioned seal of silence implemented by his father. Whereas before, the seal slipped open by way of his mother, and found were moments of relief, being able to share his stories, his heartbreak, and his hope. Now Pierre was met daily with cold and quiet dinners, across from a man who cared for nothing more than the sporadic nostalgia and rememberings of the wife that he had lost. It was during one of these cold and quiet dinners that Pierre noticed his father's hand, frozen around a soup spoon, and unable to clear an invisible barrier to his mouth. He had suffered a stroke. For years following, Pierre would become the sole provider and caregiver to the man that knew so little of what his son had overcome, and was now unable to even form the sentiment if he did wish to know. His death on November 6, 1954, was matched eerily exactly 13 years to the day that Pierre was released from Shermack prison camp. Although one might assume all vestiges of silence that were set by Pierre's father would fall to the wayside with his passing, Pierre became less and less convinced of the possibilities of him living openly or secretly as a homosexual. While not dead physically, the primary goal of the Nazis had been reached in killing one of the core facets of Pierre's identity, his homosexuality. Even before the death of his father, he began to seek out the parts and pieces of a life that would hopefully sweep him into normalcy. He found discomfort in the obvious setups by his brothers at parties to position him close to young girls who would perhaps be a suitable match. So he eventually did as his mother and father had done. He wrote into a Parisian marriage bureau for options of a suitable match. And within a short time was conducting the Iberian Rite of the Orange a ceremonial representation of commitment with the cutting and consuming of fruit. He would marry the daughter of a Spanish refugee four years before the passing of his father. Soon, the pair settled in a small valley about an hour outside of Paris, and Pierre opened his own textile shop, the beginnings of a pseudo-ordinary life. Despite initial complications of intimacy 
and the loss of a miscarriage. By 1957, Pierre would be a father to three growing children, two boys and a girl. During all this time, he was being devoured daily from the inside by a secret he could not unleash. Though Pierre took the brunt of the obvious pain and damage inflicted by an identity denied, his family would not remain unscathed. His lack of intimacy became apparent to his wife, putting great distance due to unknown reasons between them. His daughter, also the youngest of his three children, positioned herself farthest away from him, though she did maintain a close relationship with her mother. But as Pierre says, my malaise concerned chiefly my two sons. For fear of ever being pinned or pigeonholed into the corner as a homosexual, Pierre kept a careful arm's length away from his two sons. And perhaps even more upsetting than the fear of being found out by others was the fear he had of himself that was fed and perpetuated by an unsettling discourse of the time. A discourse that still runs rampant in parts of the world today, despite no factual evidence. A discourse that convinced Pierre that his fatherly relationship with his sons would no doubt shift into something much more sinister. I was paralyzed by an immense timidity. I watched other fathers play with their children, hug them and kiss them. For years on end, I was prey to an ultimately rather absurd terror that my love for them could turn into something else. So as years passed, the devouring took parts of his life away. The family moved often. He grew more estranged from his wife, fell in and out of jobs regularly. A jarring incident on his 50th birthday party led to a hospital visit and tranquilizers being prescribed, creating a new reliance on temporary methods for numbing his pain. And when the children had grown and had families of their own, the tense situation between husband and wife had become unbearable. Divorce papers were filed in 1978, and Pierre was to find another place to live while the divorce ran its course. He began to drink red wine heavily, heaving himself into the throes of alcoholism. The shift in addictions was intentional. As he states, this was no craving. It was a way of killing myself, slowly, but inexorably. But in the midst of this tumult and turmoil, Pierre found a shimmer in the darkness. In the spring of 1981, Pierre had opted to attend a local debate at a bookstore near his one-bedroom apartment. 
The debate was hosted by the publisher and founder of a popular homosexual magazine. And the main topic was the discussion of the Nazi deportation of homosexuals. Taking a seat in the back of the attendees, Pierre listened to the discussion and debate of a newly published book titled The Men with the Pink Triangle, wherein a survivor tells his story of persecution from the Nazis due to his homosexuality. As he listened in the back of the cafe, Pierre was shaken to hear recollections that matched his own. Similarities that reach beyond any one camp or any one person. Boundless brutality that after 40 years had been given life again, but through someone else's story. But perhaps the most shocking to Pierre was not the similarities of their stories, but that so many members of the audience and the publishers themselves seemed to have no idea that such camps had existed right in Alsace. Pierre contained himself throughout the readings of the book and then anxiously made his way to the publishers after the readings had ended. It was within these brief, tense moments in his pursuit of the publishers that he momentarily unleashed his 40-year secret into the world. The publisher, a man named Jean-Pierre, was instantly stunned and bewildered at the confession. Yet he urged Pierre to share his story with the world. Pierre would go on to only ask of total anonymity for fear of losing anything more in a life that had already been marked with so much loss. He underwent in-depth interviews, and he told his story, which was anonymously published in a special edition of the gay magazine Masks, which focused on Martin Sherman's play Bent that had been inspired by the events told in The Men with the Pink Triangle. With this meeting at the debate in a Parisian cafe, Pierre began to unfold more and more of himself, and slowly but surely transforming his shame and embarrassment into power and restitution and recognition. But it would be in 1982, galvanized by an archbishop of the Catholic Church denouncing and categorizing homosexuals as sick that Pierre decided to openly reveal himself to the world. And he would do this by penning an open letter to the Bishop of Strasbourg. Although the letter garnered little attention from the bishop, it did accomplish other notable tasks in Pierre's life. Perhaps the most noteworthy was Pierre's sharing of his true identity with his family. Before sending the final draft to the bishop, Pierre made copies and gave one to each member of his family. Throughout the initiation and continuation of his struggle of not only coming out, 
but of also telling those closest to him the torturous depths of his persecution. His family would become and remain solidly supportive of the actions he took and the person that he truly was. His wife even withdrew her request for a divorce, opting instead for a separation of property and new bed and board. With this admission of true identity well underway, Pierre now felt confident enough to move forward to have his deportation formally recognized by the government by qualifying for and receiving reparations. To begin his journey of qualification, Pierre needed to report his personal atrocities, where he met refusal of testimonies simply with the mention of his homosexuality. Yet, he persisted. He also underwent the meticulous and grueling task of locating proper documentation that showed his systematic movement from Alsace to Schirmeck and then back to Alsace. Amongst Holocaust scholars and historians, it's common knowledge that not only within the camps of Nazi Germany, but also ingrained within the ideology and social fabric of the Nazi regime, was a hierarchy of hate. And atop the towering members of targeted individuals stood the Jew. And what did it mean to be the most hated of the hated? It meant diligent and obsessive attention went into keeping track of your every movement. From village to cattle car, from cattle car to barracks, to and from workstations, even to the fires of the crematorium. Each and every step taken was potentially traced and recorded. This intense and ritualistic act of tracing was ultimately all for one purpose, the eventual annihilation of every single Jew in the world. This level of importance to the Nazis made it far less likely for a Jew to escape the hellacious captivity of the Third Reich. And with this hyper-focus on one minority group, it meant sloppy record-keeping and incorrect information for many of the others. This might sound like a good thing for the other minority groups, but it was very rare that any actual escape attempts came to fruition and it was even less likely that you would be released for good behavior, like Pierre had been. This mattered so much to Pierre's attempts at reconciliation and reparations because, in the realm of reparations, your movement, your documentation, your traceability, is ultimately the proof of your persecution. In 1994, Pierre was thrust upon the international stage with the publication of his memoir. He appeared on international radio and television, and now the story that had consumed him daily, the dissipator of his relationships, had taken on a new life. 
and it was not one characterized by embarrassment or shame, but one of public pride and ownership for his experience and his identity. Unfortunately, this rise in notoriety for Pierre also brought about a rise in homophobia, a rise that Pierre fell victim to shortly after appearing on French national television. He was beaten by a group of young men while they hurled homophobic and hateful slurs at him. This encounter created an angry sadness in Pierre. It was after the attack from the group of boys that Pierre was asked to share his story again. This time would be with directors Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman in their documentary film, Paragraph 175. During a section of the film, Pierre is being asked to recount his experience when taken into custody by the Gestapo. In particular, he is asked to describe the rape he experienced at the hands of the Gestapo. He becomes visibly upset, yelling at the interviewer, his face a deep maroon, his blood vessels protruded. It was obvious that it was excruciating for Pierre to even think about discussing. And another thing was obvious. His violent encounter with a group of young men had pulled back some of his pride and his newly held identity was slipping. Yet, it was with the premiere of Paragraph 175 at the 2000 Berlin Film Festival that Pierre Seal found complete and total purpose, recognition, and satisfaction in what he had been through and what he had accomplished. At the conclusion of the screening, Pierre stood and received a five-minute standing ovation from the audience, a true testament to how his story could be heard and felt and relayed across so many groups of people, but especially to the LGBTQ community. It would be three years later that Pierre would formally be recognized as a survivor of the Holocaust by the International Organization for Migrations. It should be noted that in addition to his formal recognition as a survivor, Pierre also received a check for 9,100 francs, around $1,300 in American currency, as a pitiful offering of reparations for the immensity of turmoil he experienced. But Pierre was always quick to adjust any presumptions of his actions and monetary motivations. I believe he knew he'd never receive a large settlement for his imprisonment, but rather it was always the goal of visibility and more global tolerance and a chance to stand up to be counted that pushed Pierre to the brink of madness and back again. Pierre would only live another two years after his formal recognition as a survivor. The man that had endured a seemingly cinematic and hyperbolic resistance to his identity died on a quiet day 
in November 2005 from complications of cancer. Though he always kept a candle burning for the memory of his good friend Joe, Pierre had managed to find love outside of his ceaseless rememberings. He was supported and loved by his partner of 12 years, Eric Fallou, and also by his three children and wife, who never proceeded with the filings for a divorce. Although he was unable to live long enough to see himself fairly compensated for his suffering, I choose to believe he found comfort and peace in not only what he had done for the world of the living homosexual, but also for the memory and body and place he restored to the persecuted homosexuals of Nazi Germany. And perhaps this time, as a new journey was set before him in his passing, he could now slip into the streams of an easy silence and no longer tremble for one that would devour him. Root and Branch is produced, written, and researched by me, Caleb Franklin. Music and sound design by Benjamin Dunn and artistic direction by Lindsay Franklin. Stay tuned to hear how Root and Branch will use an ancient memory technique to help listeners commit survivor stories to their memory. As I enter in the garden, there stand two men. What once was the boy in the cardboard clothes, and his father, grown weaker, yet holding his locked mouth tightly. A soft gaze passes over both of them and transpires between them. Gaze of pining and yearning and misunderstanding. The gaze then begins to glow, and slowly but surely begins to burn. Flames again leave a pile of ash, but this time there are unique seeds left behind, all of different hues and different shades. The man is careful to collect them. He scoops the earth out from its place and buries the seeds in a shallow home. And with the rapidity of a dream, the boy turned man has a family, a wife and three small children, a family grown from the silence of his father. He is careful to keep his padlocked mouth intact. As I venture to the clock tower, again, the boy-turned-man straddles the base. The family is atop, looking down. He is overwhelmed at this point, 
He believes he is too old for the climb. Yet, he attempts. Not long after, red wine comes spilling from the cracks in the stone. He's slipping. He's losing himself. He cannot make it. The family, now aged several decades, have no hands to help. As I look across the field, I see the man surveying it as well. This was once a beautiful, thriving piece of life. Yet now it's been burned away. And there must be regrowth. But just as his legs cannot handle the desolation, he spots in the distance glowing pink triangles. And from their base, Flora is restored. He attempts to join them on his way to the pond. As I circle the corner to the pond, for once, I find it without interference. No flames or trapped beings. It is a cool green color with pink light peeking through the perimeter. The man is neither held nor fighting to hold. Streaks of ash stripe his skin. He's no longer ghostly white, but a sentimental maroon with shades of cream. A single tear rolls down his face, falls, and then lands in celebration at the center of the pond. An eruption of pure sunlight engulfs the water, illuminating all darkness from the edge. He sinks softly into the pale pink light. And in his beautiful illuminating, I can see the holder of his hand, the flames and the fires, watches glistening, and shadows sneaking. Yet, they have no power here. They are but a show. There is only the silent light to send the man sinking sailing into a current which is guided by one thing, the soft yet strong echoes of the boy who lost his watch, the holder of a hand, the boy who fought flames, who suffered in silence, the boy in the cardboard clothing, the boy that is Pierre Seale.